the All Things XR podcast. where you can get the best AR VR analyzers from the biggest names in the field. Hi everyone, welcome to the All Things XR podcast, I'm Mochtaba. In today's episode, we have a conversation with Noah Zirkin from Combine Reality. Hi Noah. Hi, how are you Mochtaba? Thanks for having me on. Sure, welcome to the All Things XR podcast. Um, Noah, can you tell us more about yourself and your company, Combine Reality? Okay, so Combine Reality, um, which I founded so, somewhat co-founded um is a uh, is a brand under which um i'm developing and launching a uh, a line of project north star based augmented reality headsets um called uh well called the deck although now that um now that valve has released their steam deck uh i might want to reconsider that uh since since that product may find its way into into the space um anyhow uh so combined reality is a brand uh that was created for the commercialization of project north star headsets um and i'm uh so i'm a, a very long time uh wearable computing and augmented reality uh enthusiast and sort of tinkerer, maker, uh, hardware hacker, um, to the extent that I've done, uh, you know, XR software development, it's, it's a little bit, um, limited, but, uh, so my main focus is hardware. Um, and I, I was first in sort of in, inspired to get into this, uh, a very long time ago, um, with a, um, a visit to the MIT Media Lab when I was uh-huh. uh, 14. So, um, uh, and, and I can go into that uh, in more detail if if you want later. Um, but yeah, so I'm I'm sort of a, a hardware hacker um, and and product developer currently based in Shenzhen, uh, China, um, but originally from New York City. Mm-hmm. Great. So now, uh, one of the projects you mentioned uh, was Project North Star, which I, I believe that uh, got pretty popular. Can you tell us more about it and tell us what was the initial idea and how did you build such a device? Was that a one-man show or you worked on it in a team? So I'm actually not the original instigator or creator of the project uh, of project north star uh project north star was born at um at leap motion actually now now ultra leap uh-huh. um you you're probably familiar with their uh, hand tracking devices yeah, yeah with their hand tracking technology they're still the gold standard um for that although facebook's catching up um <laughs> and uh so so actually, the way North Star came to be is that a uh, a young guy by the name of Adam Munich um, 
met uh, David Holtz, the founder of Leap Motion, at a uh, at a party at a hackerspace in the Bay Area, and um, basically uh, approached him and said, "Hey, I've been working on this idea for an augmented reality headset, and I think that." Um, you know, between what I've done and your hand tracking technology, we could we could build it. We could make it a reality. Um, now, this was this was actually four or five years ago, um, and uh, when they first revealed Project North Star, it was uh, right around the uh, the same time that pricing and specifications had been announced for the Magic Leap 1. Uh-huh. Um, now, as a longtime uh, AR aficionado and, um, and somebody who had built um, AR hardware in the past, um, I was very intrigued by, um, by, you know, this Leap Motion reference design that they said they were going to release. Actually, one of... Adam's uh, conditions for joining Leap Motion to develop this headset was that they open source it. Uh-huh. And so when the project was announced, it was announced as an open source project. Um, and it was then uh, quite a while before they actually released it. And it was, it, it sort of coincided with the actual release of the Magic Leap one, when people were were actually getting their hands on it and were somewhat disillusioned with it. So um, uh, now, one of the most intriguing things about Project North Star was that Leap Motion asserted that it could be built for about a hundred dollars. Uh-huh. Um, now uh, they were talking about um, uh, at high volume. And um, and without certain subsystems in there, right? So um, now a lot of people, uh, however, um, saw that and thought, well, I'm going to try to build a $100 Project Northstar headset with a 100-degree field of view and, and so forth. Um, so, I, I, and I was uh, one of those people. So it was... Um, uh, now another, you know, compelling part of this was that the mechanical portions, most of the mechanical portions of yeah. this headset, could be three D printed. Um, so um, uh, now three D printing is another thing that I'm I'm pretty passionate about, and um, uh, so so I decided to build one of these one off headsets for myself mm-hmm. and now the the project north star headsets um that that original reference design has it, it's come a long way since then um and uh but the the main constraint for building this headset was as you might imagine the optics now the the these are fairly simple bird bath combiners but not um uh, nothing so exotic uh, as waveguides, um, but um, still uh, rather difficult for an individual maker to produce. Um, and and that, of course, uh, if you're making a one-off, uh, has a very um, 
large impact on um, on that you know uh, hypothetical one hundred dollar price tag. Mm-hmm. Um, so sorry, I'm rambling on uh, a bit about this, but Man, this is this is sort of how I got involved. Yeah, um, how I got involved in this. So it started out as as my wanting to simply build um, an instance of somebody else's reference design. Um, and um, after exploring what the actual cost of, of producing these combiners was going to be, right, um, having them to, to produce them up to uh, Leap Motion's uh, specification, was going to require having these um, diamond turned out of a block of PMMA, so milled out, polished, you know, to, to optical grade, and then um, and then coated with with the series of uh, coatings that um, are sort of beyond the reach of your um, of your average uh, amateur. So um, I, and part of that. Um, so, so you would think that a simple half mirror coating, um, on the inner surface of these concave, um, combiners, right? These birdbath combiners, um, would be, would be enough, right? I see. Um, except that, except that, um, are are you familiar with secondary reflection? Um, yeah, yeah. The, exactly. So, so the... The issue, but please explain it uh, for uh, our audience. Okay, so so the light passing, re- reflecting off of, you've got half of the light reflecting off of that that primary reflective surface that's closest to your eye, um, and the other half is then traveling through, you know, through the combiner, through the 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 lens, if you will. Um, um, although it isn't, it isn't a lens per se, but, um, and, and you would think that would be it, except that, um, there's the outer surface of the combiner and, um, and so, uh, what you end up with is a, a reflection off of, uh, I'm trying to think of a way to, uh, you know, I'm, trying to put it into the simplest terms yeah. uh, obviously um so so um transitions from one material to another in this case um the material of the combiner um the the most recent ones made of polycarbonate um uh previous ones pmma um uh, cause cause light to bounce um bend and you know it's it's like um, mm-hmm. the principle of total uh, total internal reflection. Um, you end up with some of that light uh, bouncing back from the surface inside the combiner, that outer surface, um, and and that ends up causing a ghosting effect, an offset secondary reflection, um, which. Uh, Especially because of the angle of of uh, our optics, um, you know, is different 
for for each eye and different across the the field of view so it's really disruptive to the experience and so that means you need an anti-reflective coating um or microstructure um a nanostructure you could you could do this with a a um a texture in the injection mold but um the the easiest way and it's still not easy is with an anti-reflective coating stack on the outer surface mm-hmm. of the combiner so um finding a good broadband um anti-reflective coating that basically gets rid of all of that light uh whether it's by uh, scattering it absorbing it or otherwise keeping it from reflecting back to you as a second coherent reflection um it's not the easiest thing to uh to source or to formulate um so uh that was that was beyond the reach of most of the people Mm -hmm. trying to uh build one-offs i see um and and uh and then there was the milling um so um Having looked into what the cost of producing a single set of these combiners for myself um, was was going to be, um, I um, I was already situated here in Shenzhen for other reasons, and I can tell you the backstory of that uh, in a bit if you'd like. Um, the um, uh, I figured that. You know, since I was here in Shenzhen with uh, mass production uh, capabilities uh, close at hand, inexpensive mass production uh-huh. capabilities close at hand, rather than spending, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand bucks to get a uh, a single set of combiners made, um, I would just have an injection mold opened and um, and mass produce them for everybody who wanted to build their own Project North Star headsets. So this started out as an effort just to enable like-minded uh, builders of this of this headset reference design initiated by Leap Motion. Uh-huh. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, and, and the injection mold to do this was going to cost a, about you know twice what a a magic leap one was going to cost Ooh. and i figured would have a much greater you know return for the community and in, in terms of the number of ar headsets that would be on people's heads right i, I yeah. could buy one or two magic leap ones and and develop against that um uh you know, anticipating that that would be a fairly limited audience and, and you know, within the limitations of that device, or I could enable thousands of people to build their own uh, Project North Star headsets for about the same amount of money. So so that's where I put, put my cash, was in opening injection molding tooling and, um, and mass producing these combiners, which were sort of the hardest thing to get. Um... Also being situated in Shenzhen, um, it was much easier to form relationships with uh, vendors for the other parts uh, in this headset reference design. Exactly. Um, for inst- yep. So, for instance, uh, BOE, 
who makes the displays that we use in the headset. And these are actually the same displays that are in the Valve Index. So um, two 1440 by 1600, um, you know, very low persistence, um, 120 hertz, um, you know, LCD displays uh, that, that are really made specific. Um, they're 3.5 inch. Uh, so, so they're, um, you know, made specifically for XR. Um, although, although originally VR, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, one, one tends to think of, uh, AR, um, you know, purpose-built AR displays as micro displays because you want to fit them into, you know, a small unobtrusive pair of glasses, you know, that, that look like a pair of Oakley's, um, or, or, you know, in the case of Fusix or, or, um, you know, some other compact form factor, um, and which Project North Star absolutely is not. It is this big, awkward-looking thing, but <laughs> uh, produces but produces a better experience than anything you else you can get in in uh, a similar uh, price range, certainly. So, um, uh, yeah, that. Um, Let's see. Uh, how do I go off on that <laughs> tangent? I'm sorry. Um, the uh, so so getting those uh, combiners made and, and enabling other people to produce it was sort of my uh, primary goal. Right, established a relationship with BOE so uh, so that I could source those displays, and that was actually really a matter of that there was a uh, a trade show happening at the convention center across the street from my office and um you know maybe two days after i had decided that i i was going to you know source a few hundred of these displays to get started with so i walked across the uh, street to this convention center um found the BOE booth at the conference, uh, got somebody's card, had them put me in touch with the right people, and then had them come visit our office and see the samples of the combiners that had made, so, you know, that we'd had made, uh, so they'd uh, take the project seriously, and, uh-huh. and then uh, they said, yeah, sure, we'll sell you displays. Um, uh, and then, uh, so basically there were a number of hard-to-source, hard-to-produce components for this headset, and I sort of took it upon myself to make those accessible and and so that people would have this platform to uh, build on. And then as the supplier of these parts, uh, I benefited uh, in that the, the market for them and the market for the headsets uh, increased, you know, uh, gradually, but, but in an accelerating way. Um, uh, uh, making the platform itself more compelling, just like any open source um, uh, project, when there's sort of been a, a critical number of contributions made to it, uh, it becomes much more attractive. And um, and this project, fortunately, has um, has continued to attract more and more people who want to develop for it and build on it, whether it's software or hardware. Yeah. Um, so, um, so that, that's sort of, uh, how I got involved in the project and, and it's sort of grown from there. Um, Ultra Leap, uh, you know, af- after the Leap Motion and Ultra Haptics merger, uh, have continued to be involved and supportive, 
um, and and the headsets still include uh, their hand tracking technology, which is mm-hmm. one of the most attractive technologies in the headset. Um, and so, um, yeah, uh, I, and right now we're uh, and we've been working on this for a while, and, and there have been uh, there have been frustrating delays that that I can. I can also go into why yeah. there have been delays, but um, but we're working towards an injection molded, mass produced uh, headset with a mature SDK and um, and a really uh, mature uh, set of sensors and features that that uh, will really let it hold its own um, against and alongside anything else out there. Uh huh. Great. So now, uh, what's the underlying um, software system? Is it uh, relying on AR Core and AR Kit, or is it something else? So the beauty of Project North Star um, is that it is basically completely platform agnostic. Uh-huh. Um, so so it's a tethered headset, like a um, you know like an Index or or a PC VR yeah. headset, um, and um, you know, has all of the sensors necessary, but but um, it isn't uh, it isn't really locked into anything proprietary. It's a it's an open set of subsystems uh, that work together. So right now, um, you can develop for it on Windows, and that's probably where it's uh, most mature. But also uh-huh. on uh, also on Linux, those are the the two main platforms. Um, for which people are developing software uh, for for Project North Star headsets. Um, I would love at some point to uh, incorporate um, an XR2 or or even whatever it, its uh, successor is, or or to um, be able to tether it to to an Android device um, as the brains of this thing, but. Um, but for the time being, it's a, a, a tethered headset, and the uh, development process looks a lot like the uh, VR development process uh, mm-hmm. on those two operating systems. So, um, you know, on Linux, we have an OpenXR uh, runtime uh, in the form of Calabra's uh, Monada, and um, pe- people have incorporated uh, support into StereoKit. Um, which is a, a great um, sort of uh, uh, interaction and, and hand tracking framework um, uh, for OpenXR. Uh, and then on Windows, we've been mainly focused on Unity. So uh-huh. um, um, the original the original software release um, for Project North Star. Um, from from Leap Motion was a Unity asset package yeah. uh, that that contained uh, most of the necessary optical distortion code um, uh, and um, uh, and and the hand tracking, right? And yeah. then and then to that you could add basically any six degree of freedom solution uh, that you wanted, whether it was um, uh, Steam VR, right? Uh, lighthouse tracking system. Mm-hmm. You could mm-hmm. uh, 
put put a Vive puck on top of this thing and, exactly. and that works just fine. You could uh, put retro reflective uh, markers, you know, a retro reflective rigid body on it and and use a high end, you know, Vicon motion capture system if you wanted to. Or you could take the approach that I did and uh, use um, an inside out uh, tracking system onboard SLAM. And um, so, so actually, the first sensor that I uh, incorporated into a Project Northstar build um, was uh, for inside-out tracking. Was the structure core uh-huh. um, from Occipital? Yeah, yeah, um, yep. So uh, uh, I've uh, at at the time. Uh, Jeff Powers and Fakas Reddy um, were were still the the senior guys at the company. They've since left to um, a, and are doing different things. But, um, but we had Jeff, Jeff in a in a recent episode. Ah, great, yeah. perfect. So Jeff and a bunch of the uh, the folks from Occipital left to start um, Arcturus Industries, um, and uh, and sort of continue the the slam research from uh from occipital but the so so the first sensor that i um that i put on there for doing inside out tracking and uh was also hopefully going to get uh environment meshing out of it but but sort of never did um uh was the structure core and uh-huh. uh, using their perception engine uh integration uh, unfortunately that never really fully matured while at uh, Occipital uh, just because the, the the company had different priorities. Yeah. Um, uh, then uh, after that switched to, uh, so I've used a, a number of different solutions, all of which are still supported, um, but right now most people are using the Intel T261, which is the module form of the T265, uh, which is a a, de- a a dedicated um slam module um i don't know if you're familiar with uh imus like the uh mpu 6050 or or yeah the, yeah yeah uh 055 or 080 yeah. um the t261 um so the reason i mentioned those two imus in particular is because they do all of the sensor fusion on board and spit out, you know, fully formed orientation solutions. They spit Mm -hmm. out quaternions, um, which takes a lot of the math overhead, um, one off of the host, but also uh, relieves developers of the responsibility for for doing that sensor fusion themselves, um, which which is a complex bit of math. So um, the T261 is the sort of the slam equivalent of that. It has two stereo fisheye cameras and an IMU, and then an Intel Myriad. Uh, I believe that one had the Myriad two, um, uh, uh, you know, neural net processor um, on board. Um, you know, on board this little module, and it gives you uh, in in the same way that that those IMUs spit out quaternions. This one gives you uh, an orientation and translation solution, so um, so you have your full six degree of freedom solution without 
without even needing to get uh, the camera feeds or the IMU data. They are accessible, but um, but you don't need them. Um, so again, that takes a lot of overhead off of the host and just makes it an easy drop-in solution for us. So, uh, um, no, you had good experience with those uh, because I, I've also experimented with uh, in the real sense uh, T-series, but the drift issues are somehow irritating in uh, relatively large spaces. Uh, yeah. So, um, so in relatively larger spaces, they they are annoying. Also, yeah. the jumping. So the T two sixty one has an an integrated relocalization function uh, that will you know, and it's sort of an an anti kidnapping uh, measure. If you if you yeah. so so if it has um, uh, if if the confidence of uh, well, what it ends up resulting in is sort of a, a multiple uh, fragmented uh, maps, internal representations on the device, and um, and if there is a better match in one map than the other, or if the device thinks there is, it will jump to that other sort of completely separate yeah. map. And and you end up with these multiple coordinate systems, um, and, and the device jumps back and forth uh, between them. You can disable this. It is mm-hmm. not well documented. Uh-huh. You can suppress that behavior. <laughs> you can um, you can also um, preload a map and disable preloadization yeah, yeah. and 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 the jumping. Um, at that point, um, there there is still an issue of drift but the experience doesn't break where Mm -hmm. where suddenly you know with with that relocalization you know everything in the scene might you know suddenly jump half a meter to to the left and um uh, it obviously breaks the entire you know breaks the immersiveness of the experience um so we don't consider the T two sixty one a long term solution. Um, we want to get away from it as mm-hmm. really as quickly as possible. Um, and uh, one of the one of the sets of hardware uh, that we're looking at is um, you know the Luxonis Depth AI platform, uh-huh. uh, the underlying platform for the Oak D um, that was uh, and the Oak One that were. Uh, recently uh funded on kickstarter as, as a collaboration with uh open cv uh-huh right yeah yeah um yeah. yep so uh we're actually working pretty closely with them and and uh we're advocating for uh some slam centric uh features uh on the device and um you know uh it now has uh, a pretty robust, um, you know, uh, feature tracking uh, module in there, uh, and uh, yeah, so so we're gradually seeing that um, the the necessary set of features uh, being built out. It isn't quite there yet, so so most people are for the moment still using the T two sixty one. Other people have used the Z. Um, uh, the Exvisio uh, sensor modules are great, uh-huh. um, but uh, 
yeah, so so and again, this is why um sort of being a platform agnostic um collection of parts and, and keeping this thing modular is so critical. It is um you know, it's a development platform, uh both for hardware and software, right? And uh and so we're seeing it gradually get um get more robust and as uh more suitable sensor modules emerge um we can we can swap out what we have um so uh and part of what i like about that is that um because this is still an evolving field both from a hardware and software perspective um uh with with rapid progress being made on all uh on all fronts um just because you've you've sort of committed the the you know the money um and effort to get involved in this and and invested in a headset uh doesn't mean that that investment will be wasted when a better technology comes out um you can simply swap out that module um and and keep using the rest of the hardware that's great so no how do you think open source hardware projects will affect the hardware market in the future will they have the same effect as open source software i would say that in certain areas they already have Mm -hmm. um the the most the the most obvious of which would be uh 3d printing of Uh course yeah um and um and that's actually an a big inspiration for um for how i've approached this project um i was uh lucky enough and and this ends up you know uh, this is actually a a critical part of uh of my own backstory Mm -hmm. um uh i was lucky enough to witness the uh the MakerBot team uh, form in New York uh-huh. and and sort of closely watch their progress and uh, talk to uh, both Brie Pettis and, and uh, Zach Smith uh, at length about the open hardware model and what the pros and cons were um, and, and so forth. Um, and so the, you know... Uh, we would not have, you know, three hundred dollar, uh, you know, high quality, uh, desktop three D printing that allows people to prototype their ideas, um, if not for the fact that that this was an open source technology. Yeah. Um, and and so, um. So I would say right there that that's already a a, a very high impact, um, you know, effect of of uh, open source hardware, um, and then and then there's there's the Arduino, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the Arduino has been incredibly high impact, uh, including, um, you know, including in the three D printer market, but you know even on the Northstar headset, right? The firmware running on the display driver board is, 
is based on an Arduino bootloader. Um, the firmware on the uh, uh, you know on the internal hub system in the headset mm-hmm. uh, is is also Arduino based, right? And um, the reasons being that uh, you know not not that we couldn't write a a lower Im- lower level implementation. Uh, of these functions is to make it easy for other people to make changes and um and contribute to it right so um and i actually ended up getting into hardware because of um you know because of arduino Mm -hmm. uh so uh i i think for most you won't find too many people of my age, um, and I'm 40, so uh-huh. uh, I don't think you'll find too many 40-year-olds who will say that they, you know, who, who have ended up doing professional product development, who, who would say that they got into doing electrical engineering uh, because of the Arduino, but I, I was a bit of a latecomer to uh, to this field, um, or, or at least the professional practice of it um and so um uh, and the arduino made it very easy to to get into it quickly uh, realize realize some of uh my ideas in a very satisfying way um you know get that that sort of positive feedback loop going uh and um uh positive reinforcement right Uh, of thinking hey i want to build this thing yeah and you know a few days later or a week later having it uh, (laughs) and um is is incredibly gratifying and and makes you want to dive deeper into it so you know i i think we have uh you know we've witnessed a, a a huge expansion of you know the embedded development field and and uh and invention independent invention um by virtue of the fact that you know there's this highly abstracted highly accessible embedded development platform uh and then and then that the hardware itself is open source and you can you know you can build production hardware based on it if you want uh and variations on it so um it's so yeah i i would say we've already seen it uh uh-huh. even even though some people might not not be fully aware of it yeah yeah i see i see uh now can you also tell us more about your um recent project um the other project project tact can you tell us more about that <laughs> okay so tact actually isn't that recent um amusingly. really yeah um, i, I uh, hadn't yeah. heard of it yeah well, because I never commercialized it, and <laughs> I may, I may yet. Uh, Tact is arguably, um, had I commercialized it, it, it was um, basically the first 3DOF uh, VR controller, mm-hmm. um, uh, at least in terms of the, the combination of functions that, that are on there. But that wasn't its original intent. And and this is the thing that actually um, originally brought me here to China, uh, uh-huh. which is something I can segue into in a, in, in a minute. But um, so um, I... 
it's funny all of this ties together um, <laughs> uh, pretty tightly um i um uh, so immediately after building my first arduino project uh back in the late aughts so you know 2008 um uh which came about because my my neighbor was an industrial design student Mm -hmm. at pratt institute in brooklyn and and wanted help on his uh on his thesis project and said hey noah you know how to code a bit do you um you know i'm I'm building this thing. I have no idea how to write the firmware. Could you help me? And so I did. I asked him where he got this incredible Arduino thing. He pointed me towards SparkFun, and uh, I went and uh, checked out the site and said, "Whoa, there are there are MEMS gyroscopes and accelerometers and all. Of, you know, I could build a motion capture suit <laughs> out of this stuff." Um, and and this was you know around I, I guess. 2006 2007 uh-huh. um and so um uh, so i decided to build a homebrew mocap suit and uh-huh. um that ended up becoming a uh, a sort of hand-worn uh partial glove through a series uh, of iterations and um and so i i developed a certain level of uh, expertise building these these uh, homebrew prototype uh, input systems for uh, for you know spatial simulations um, and and spatial interfaces. Um, Tact was an offshoot of of that eventually uh, because of Google Glass. Uh-huh. So. Um, I, I got one of the early Google Glass Explorer uh, units, and it turned out that um, uh, I could not stand the swiping on the side of my head interface modality. <laughs> um, I, I absolutely hate it. Um, and and so I you know started building an input device for controlling it. Um, and... I then applied to Hackcelerator, uh, now known as Hacks. Uh-huh. Um, do, are you familiar with Hacks? No, no, no. So Hacks is a hardware okay. Hacks is a hardware startup accelerator uh, based here in Shenzhen, uh, funded by SOS Ventures, um, Sean O'Sullivan, um, and, and they have uh, they have offices uh, in the Bay Area uh, as well. But the the main accelerator uh, um, is is here in Shenzhen, and um, the resident. So so it was originally based out of Seed Studio, which is an open hardware company, um, and the resident engineer there was um, Zach Smith, uh, uh, Hogan, who was the founder of MakerBot. And who had just mm-hmm. left the company over the fact that it had it was turning in a closed source direction. Um, I was looking for ways to uh, commercialize to to fully develop and commercialize uh, this input device for controlling Google Glass and other uh, monocular heads up display systems. Um, so, uh, so that's actually what I came here to to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 
and and I I like to tell people when I when I sort of see them developing monocular heads up displays that follow Google Glasses cue and have have that little trackpad <laughs> on the side uh, that that I hate that interface <laughs> modality so much that I moved to China to <laughs> eradicate it. <laughs> um, and um, so, so what the device actually is, is a tiny, um, maybe uh, three, three and a half, maybe four centimeter on a side. Um, uh-huh. uh, I, I don't have one in front of me and I probably ought to know that off the top of my head. <laughs> uh, uh, trackpad, uh, you know, clip on uh, trackpad with an IMU uh, in it and, and running tilt compensated uh, uh, air mouse uh, firmware. Um, and uh, so it's a combination trackpad uh, and air mouse um that uh interfaces over ble uh and um uh and can you know is very versatile can be used for controlling uh you know not just monocular uh heads up displays but other um you know really anything uh-huh. it's sort of a multi-purpose um uh, and multi-purpose device uh the original intent being that it could clip to a belt or a pocket or a wristband or the strap of a bag um that the uh that the trackpad the uh, multi-touch interface on it uh could be used to control a heads-up display or other devices yeah uh, using you know using little swipes on on the surface but that it could also be unclipped and and used as as a more spatial interface uh device as well um you know it also has a um it's also uh force sensitive so it sort of has the equivalent of of force uh-huh. touch on apple products and a uh, a linear resonant uh motor you know um uh similar to the taptic engine so so there is a, a really nice sort of tactile haptic element to it hence tact uh-huh. uh, it, it's also uh, sort of less weird than reaching up and swiping on the side of your head hence tact uh, <laughs> so the name works on a couple of levels um the reason why i never finished it and brought it to market was that um google glass broke third party <laughs> or or any external input device hmm. support so um i was here developing the product the the Android um, Bluetooth stack on the uh, on the Google Glass originally did not support um, HID over GAT, so that's basically mouse and keyboard over Bluetooth low energy. Uh, it only supported Bluetooth Classic, so Bluetooth two uh, input devices, and and even then only after uh, a hack. Which they showed people um, in a Google I/O session. So um, I actually spoke to people there who said, uh, "Don't worry, you're you're on the right track. We're absolutely going to enable BLE input devices." Um, and and so uh, you know, to keep doing what you're doing, you're, uh-huh. you're absolutely on the right track. Um, when uh, I. 
it took a very long time for them to finally upgrade the Android kernel version uh, on Glass, and um, and it finally supported uh, BLE. Um, however, at the same time, they completely broke and you know or blocked uh, input device support altogether. Not uh-huh. just BLE, but Bluetooth Classic. So um, uh, it went from you know, at, at the original pitches and, and sort of demo day talks that I gave with, with uh, WarePoint Tact, um, because it was a BLE device and Glass didn't support that, uh, I'd actually built a little inter- uh, sorry intermediary device, uh-huh. a little bridge device that I had hidden in my pocket. And so the, the, the Tact demo unit was connected to that via BLE, and then it was relaying uh, input, relaying HID commands um, via Bluetooth Classic. Um, and and after this update, I couldn't even give those demos. So um, it, it sort of negated the entire, uh, you know, the the reason for for this device's existence uh at least for a while now uh-huh. um now smart glasses are are coming back and yeah. um uh and they're uh and in fact oh this was infuriating maybe maybe two and a half years ago um uh i picked up my uh my google glass and and <laughs> put it on just you know just just yeah just for the hell of it yeah, yeah just for fun and uh went and looked at the uh preferences they had pushed out an update maybe a month before it was the first and and it, it that coincided with the uh google glass uh enterprise edition too um they had pushed out this update and it was the first update in you know, four years or something. <laughs> I go and I swipe to the to the pairing preference preferences, and and there's a function there and a menu item, pair BLE input <laughs> device, and my jaw just dropped. <laughs> just like, are you serious? So so the hardware supported it all along, as you know, as I knew. But um, yeah, the so they're finally um. You know the device that I'd built for it. You know, four or five years earlier, um, finally worked. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so I actually i I then started that project back up, and mm-hmm. uh, sort of just as I was finishing it up, and that there there were just a, a few little things left to do on the firmware, and and one. Uh, fix to make to the uh power management system on it but but overall the hardware was done uh northstar came along and uh-huh. uh i sort of uh dove right into into that and i you know i i might start wearpoint back up again uh sooner or later but um uh, it's not my top priority <laughs> at the moment yeah i see i see um no have you also experimented with uwbs so I haven't, but there are people in the North Star community who uh-huh. are very bullish, very enthusiastic about this technology. Um, I tend not to focus on anything that involves external infrastructure, although uh-huh. 
you know, there is also the possibility of, uh, you know, device to device uh, mesh networking, right? Yeah, exactly. Ad hoc uh, mesh networks. Um, And if enough of these devices are independently location aware and are contributing to the location awareness of this mesh network and and the relative positions of of the devices within it. Um, and and parts of that can be fixed infrastructure, right? If if UWB if ultra wideband um, infrastructure um, with a known location does you know gain some ubiquity, then then that really does make this a viable option for um, you know. Uh, location awareness for for context awareness for um for headsets and exactly devices yeah exactly um, so so i have not been um uh, i personally have not been uh experimenting with it yet um brian brown who is our um who has been uh the community manager on the um on the Project North Star Discord server, uh-huh. is is very enthusiastic about ultra wideband technologies. So, um, and it's something that we've looked at. Um, I've had other things on my plate for the time being, but given the the modularity of the system, adding it would not be a big deal. Yeah, I think if UWB mesh networks can solve the localization challenge, which is the most sophisticated your cloud problem, that would just change the game entirely. Facebook, Snap, etc. are putting large sums of money on it, and this will just change the game. And um, I think the winner will be Apple, actually, with lots of UWB sensors uh, in its devices. It would be huge. It, it, it's a it's a it's potentially a very very disruptive technology in in the best way mm-hmm. the best sense of the word um uh it's an enabling uh technology and and i hope things do get uh built out that way um it, it would be great to see that adopted um and uh it's actually i was uh looking for a long time at uh how one could do sort of coast, uh, course localization uh-huh. with um, uh, with RFID tags, yeah. right? And um, and this is sort of a um, the the logical you know evolution of of that. Um, exactly. It's not something that I've I've looked at much lately, but um, uh, yeah, it, it's. It's nice that there is is now an evolution of that technology such that, um, you know, small, inexpensive RF beacons can allow you to triangulate a, uh, you know, like a, a centimeter scale position. Mm hmm. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, no, the projects you work on are somehow competing with giants like Microsoft HoloLens or Magic Leap and so on. What is your strategy to avoid being disrupted by these big companies? Well, 
Uh, one is to position ourselves as an inexpensive development platform for prototyping experiences on uh-huh. those, you know, for those more expensive devices, um, at least until we have sort of feature parity with them. And there are still some things that we need to incorporate. Um, we're, we're still working on our eye tracking system. We don't have a great environment reconstruction solution at the moment. Um, although we're, we are very actively exploring different options, um, you know, so, so for the time being, um, positioning it as, uh, and, and we've got a really good MRTK, uh, integration for the headset, right? So, um, that it makes it really easy to port, um, you know, to, to sort of develop for for platforms like HoloLens and um, and a uh, a Project Northstar headset, a, a uh-huh. deck headset, um, you know, simultaneously. And uh, we've spoken to some companies that that have developed uh, very successful, um, you know, XR applications, stuff you probably use. Um, that you know who are have even entertained the possibility and and are now in the process of uh porting their software to Northstar because it's relatively trivial uh having already written their software uh on top of MRTK. Um the other thing is that this does have um by virtue of Ultraleap's hand tracking, it has better hand tracking than than you've got on any of the uh other uh, AR headsets exactly, and um, a larger field of view. I avoid saying wider because I would say the the um, most distinctive part of you know sort of feature of this headset's optics um, is the vertical field of view, and uh-huh. people people don't really appreciate how critical <laughs> that is uh, until they experience it and yeah. and having a large vertical field of view is almost even more important to natural interaction than than the horizontal field of view is um so um believe it or not uh so <laughs> um so that that is sort of unique to us uh at the moment at least uh among uh optical see-through ar headsets um now viable video pass-through headsets weren't really a thing when i got involved in this and uh so devices like uh the lynx headset coming right up very intriguing uh i'll want one it's it's a, a very interesting looking device. Um, I still, you know, sort of prefer the idea, like the idea of actual photons that that have bounced off of the actual objects that I'm seeing. You know, being the photons that are hitting my retina. So so I sort of have a visceral preference for mm-hmm. um, you know for optical see through. Um, but but video pass through is interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, also, also the fact that uh, despite the Virgin's accommodation conflict inherent to, you know, non, um, uh, um, 
light field, non-light field display solutions, uh, optic solutions. Um, the uh, your, your eyes are basically fixed at a at a single focal plane all the time in a video pass through uh, headset, right? It's yeah, um, and so uh, you know while while it's less of a challenge for the actual experience, uh, it isn't great for your eyes. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's unnatural so somehow. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, uh, you know, your your eyes are remaining. You know, the the optical accommodation is remaining fixed while while your while your eyes are converging on not just the virtual content but everything. Um, and uh and i don't really like that idea (laughs) um so um so so i think there are there are some really compelling reasons why optical see-through um despite despite the fact that video pass-through is more interesting for some things right being able to actually modify the, the the perception modify the contents of the real world Right, mm-hmm. being able to fully overwrite things with with you know uh, you know fully a fully masked reality, you know um, having an alpha channel to work yeah. with, um, uh, you know those are those are sort of the the that's the most compelling reason to use uh, pass through video pass through, um, but but I think there are some really compelling reasons to keep pursuing optical see-through as well um so uh so i i think it has a sort of unique market positioning right it has its advantages um over the other stuff that's out there but i think it is also because of the cost um so so i've been selling um you know hand-built hand calibrated mostly 3d printed headsets for um depending on on the hardware that's on board between 500 and 800 bucks uh that price can be brought considerably uh lower in mass production and yeah. but remember that doesn't include compute right it's a tethered tethered headset um the um so if you have a a studio full of developers or or even remotely located developers who are working on your hololens experience for instance right you can either buy each of them a $3500 hololens too yeah or um uh, you know and uh, which is a, a pretty large capital investment and exactly. and for for every one of your developers or or have them writing code that they can't really test at their desk and then you know if it's a co-located studio and then they have one or two units that they can go test on um or you can have one you can have a north star headset at every single person's desk for a lot less money uh-huh. um and uh so so i see that as a um a really good potential market for this um and and the education market basically anywhere where cost uh is a consideration but quality of experience the requirements for the quality of experience are still very high 
Um, and, you know, given that this is an open source project, uh, I think we will see sort of an emergent set of applications for it. I think um, exactly. I can't, I can't anticipate all of the ways in which this is uh, going to be used. And, um, which, which has been problematic for some conversations <laughs> about partnerships with, for instance, Qualcomm. They want to know precisely what, you know, application this headset is intended uh, for, right? And part of that is is probably not stepping on the toes of their other partners. Um, and... Um, and also just having a confidence in in the success of the platform, right? This is this is going to be really good for industrial inspection, or this is going to be really good for, um, you know, for education or so forth. And and I sort of refuse to commit to a a sort of specific use case for something that is such an open platform. It really is up to everyone else how they want to use this thing. I see. I see. Great. So now another topic I wanted to talk about with you is um, about China ecosystem. As you said, you live in China. Um, what are the differences you see between China and Silicon Valley tech in a startup ecosystem? Okay. So I've, I have some degree of experience with both. Uh, I can't claim to have been an integral part of either, but... Um, also, the the ecosystem here evolves very quickly. So uh-huh. what I might have to say might not apply to right now, uh, <laughs> this very moment. In, in the past, sort of the main uh, critique that I had of the Chinese uh, startup ecosystem was that rather than looking for completely unique um investment opportunities uh-huh. investors were looking for something safe so you would have one robotics company for instance uh you know home robotics company raise a bunch of money and uh and get a high valuation uh and then perhaps be acquired and suddenly home robotics companies were you know the the thing to invest in that's uh-huh. what everyone was looking to put their money into and i was i was just sort of scratching my head thinking but but that's been done <laughs> how how are these companies sort of pushing the envelope um what's unique about it and um it, it was sort of this this trend following um now maybe now, now the last time, uh, sort of the last period of time when I was spending a lot of time in the startup community here was, you know, was a few years ago. Uh, I have sort of had my head under a rock with, with the North Star stuff. I have not <laughs> been going out and uh, trying to raise money for this, actually, yeah. oddly enough. Um, I've been funding it by selling kits. So... Um, the uh which has been great it's sort of been self-sustaining so far um uh, i'm not sure how much more we can scale uh without raising some money but um uh but that means that i have not been um sort of uh 
heavily involved in in the startup ecosystem here lately. Uh, that said, just in terms of of innovative uh, thinking and um, uh, and trying new ideas, uh, I have you know I've witnessed more and more of that here, um, and and also just looking at the research papers uh, coming out of uh, domestic institutions uh, here, really interesting XR uh, research coming out of Tsinghua and, and uh, you know, other well-respected uh, Chinese research institutions. Uh, so I can only imagine the, um, you know, the startup ecosystem here becoming more and more innovative. Um I I wish I had uh, sort of uh, more insightful uh, observations about it to uh, to give you, but um, uh, I haven't been heavily involved lately. <laughs> no, no, that was great. No, um, the face of the internet, I think, um, is changing. Benedict Evans from A16Z has a great piece on it titled "The End of the American." internet there's a trend that the states and governments try to have more control over the data of their people china is the frontier in this matter with its great firewall um, also we saw the tiktok ban in the us and also countries like iran try to imitate china's great wall as well and how do you see this trend of governments trying to have more control will affect the next generation of the ar and vr and the internet like the metaverses so, um, so I haven't read the piece. Uh, I haven't read Evan's piece, um, but uh, it's it's sort of undeniable that there is uh, a trend, at, at least in a lot of parts of the world, uh, towards that, and um, you know, which is dismaying as a as a um, a fan of sort of the the wild west of of the internet, right? Mm-hmm. The, yeah. You know, as, as someone who grew up reading all the cyberpunk novels uh, uh, and and so forth, um, you know, uh, you know Gibson and Stevenson and and lots of others. Um, it, uh, you know, I I sort of love the the um, sort of uh, I, I romanticize the chaotic, um, you know, open ended. Uh, vision of the internet right the yeah. as a content agnostic um you know platform set of infrastructure so um so i do find it dismaying that that um there's more government control uh over the internet that said um you know given the irresponsible behavior of some of the platforms that do uh, deliver their content in an mm-hmm. algorithmic way, yeah. um, uh, maybe some degree of regulation and control curation is is necessary. I really he- hesitate to see that, right, uh-huh. uh, or to say that rather. But um, uh, you know, I I certainly understand the impulse to um to try to control what's being delivered um and how people are using the internet now you mentioned the 
the the attempted the hypothetical TikTok ban in the U.S. Right? Yeah. Um, and which, at at least to my knowledge, didn't work. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, um, and and that's for that's because it's simply impossible on the to to uh ban things on on i i want i also hesitate to say the real internet now the only reason that the that the great firewall is possible um is because china only has three ipxs right uh-huh. All of the traffic going in and out of the co- country is is being funneled through three, albeit high bandwidth, choke points, right? Mm-hmm. In 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 Beijing, Shanghai, uh, and in Guangdong, um, and uh, and so that means it, you know I think it's a lot easier for them to run you know, deep packet inspection and mass and, um, uh, it, it would be a lot harder to actually implement a, a, um, you know, the ban of certain kinds of traffic and software on, on the, uh, quote, American internet on, on uh-huh. the internet as designed in the rest of the world. Um, uh, it also means that they can, you know, uh, they have these three points at which they can implement things like man-in-the-middle attacks and, and um, you know, uh, I, I guess it's, a, it's not DNS poisoning, but, but um, uh, substituting, um, uh, basically blocking uh, certain DNS queries. Mm-hmm. So... So, so it's almost physically impossible to do the same uh, in the states, mm-hmm. um, and you know it. It would be extremely. It will be extremely unpopular for me to say it, but I do uh, understand um, and see the the logic of of having the Great Firewall sort of reflected here um in in that um uh with all of the negative uh you know media portrayal and and uh, obviously uh as somebody physically located in china at uh at the moment there are certain things i can't talk about for you know for my own sake um but the um Given all of the negative stuff in the media um, about China, the I would say the nationalism here, you know, might be might be more extreme, uh, and and people would be more defensive. More, uh, I I don't know if the place would be more insular, but um, there there's. You know they they do have reason to sort of try to keep out some of the the hostility of the uh, you know what 
I have not thought this well well out well enough to to be able to give any sort of authoritative or well informed opinion uh, about this. But uh, and it may just be that I've been living behind the Great Firewall for long enough that that I uh, just sort of accept it. But <laughs> yeah, um, uh, obviously using a VPN to to access you know access quote the real internet. Um, but um, it's, I mean that, that that's a big question. It's a really, <laughs> it's a it's a really tough question. The, um, it, how it will affect metaverses? Well, you might end up with fragmented ecosystems, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So a, uh, um, you know, se- separate versions of of. You know, separate metaverses, as, exactly. as it were. Although, although I do not, I, you know, I I don't view the quote metaverse as a, a sort of singular thing. Um, um, uh, and and it has sort of become a, a loaded, uh, a loaded term to me. I I also shy away from using the term metaverse <laughs> to to. Yeah. To me, the metaverse is a, a simulation involving something called the street on a black, perfectly spherical virtual planet, um, you know, out of out of Snow Crash. Yeah, <laughs> where, yeah exactly. Where Stevenson, you know, coined the phrase. It's, it's sort of a um, it, it's about as meaningful as as the word cyberspace coined by Gibson. You know, can can we talk about a, a singular the cyberspace? You know, no. It's, um, uh, you know, it, it's cool that people have adopted that sort of fictional term um, and and uh, and applied it to to the real world. But um, and and that a lot of there's been a lot of hemming and hawing and and uh, attempts to define what the metaverse is. Um, I, frankly, I see AR as just an extension of the internet and the platforms that we already have. And, exactly. Um, those those protocols already exist. Uh, you know, additional protocols will be added, but this isn't. Uh, you know, the 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 internet was still the internet when. The internet was still the internet when it made the leap from just people's desktop computers to the phones in our pockets, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We didn't change the name of the internet. Um, and people did talk about things like the mobile... Wo- uh, um, sorry. I did talk about things like the mobile web and, and so forth. But um, but nobody actually adopted that. Um, and so... You know, I I actually don't see see there being a whole lot of longevity to the term metaverse. Um, I see. So, so in terms of, um, you know, how authoritarian control of portions of the internet, you know, will affect the uh, the formation of metaverses. Um, the same way it affects the formation and operation of everything else. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's, it's infrastructure. 
Yeah. So now users' habits are different in different parts of the world because of different cultures and behaviors. Like, for example, QR codes are much more popular in East Asian countries like China and Japan, but not as popular in Europe and the US. But uh, the COVID has changed a bit, but not that much. How these different habits and behaviors uh, do you think will affect the future of AR and VR? Well, I... I could see AR and VR being visually much busier in um, in in sort of Asian UI uh, UX, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the if just just uh, looking at the mobile app user interfaces in China versus the U.S., right? Um, in in the U.S., we tend to value sort of a clean, sparse design with exactly. uh, sort of hierarchically nested, um, uh, you know, features, stuff sort of hidden in menus, um, just to keep things visually clean um, and and to make it sort of easy to take in everything that's on the display at once. Um, on In an app like Taobao, um it is it is incredibly um busy visually uh-huh. and that may have to do with how compact and concise um you know chinese characters are right the the uh-huh. writing uh so this may just be a function of of uh having written language uh based on on sort of iconography um, as, as opposed to a, a phonetic spelling out of everything. You can fit a lot more into the same space. Um, so, you know, we might see see something like that, um, see, see those sorts of differences, um, you know, between AR user interfaces in, you know, in the West and and in Asia, um, at, at least in countries that that use these icono you know iconographic um, uh, 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 written languages, the um, uh, I don't know if you've seen um, you know uh, uh, hyper reality by Keiji Matsuda. I, I, sure I, I think yeah 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 I've seen that yeah yeah cluttered ads and such yeah I I think that the likelihood of a reality like that is is actually higher here than than it would be in the West uh-huh. um I, just just based on on observations of existing user interfaces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. I see. Um, so now, as of our last question, how do you envision the future of AR and VR? That is a very, very big question, <laughs> and and it depends on certain things, uh, namely, if um, uh, I think it depends most on whether Zuck manages to push everyone else out of the space or not. Oh yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I agree if, with that. If if Facebook and their business models 
wind up being the primary shaping forces uh, for XR. Um, uh, well, frankly, I find that terrifying. Um, <laughs> uh, just because it, you know, uh, XR that is that is motivated primarily um, by not by utility, but by holding your attention so as to make observations about you and gain a deeper understanding of you to even better hold your attention and Mm -hmm. sell you stuff um, and manipulate you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, You know, either, either because they want to, or, or at the behest of the highest bidder, um, you know, it's, uh, that is one dystopia I really don't want to live in. Um, (laughs) so, um, uh, I hope that is not the future, uh, that, that we see. Um, I do, for me, what, what I want to get most out of AR is utility. And Mm -hmm. I, don't know if you could tell just by by the nature of my responses to these questions or <laughs> or um but uh you know i'm pretty add um <laughs> if if you're if you're familiar so um uh, a spatial a spatial means that does not require totally total immersion of organizing and interacting with data um associating thoughts with it um, creating structures uh, out of it, um, you know. So spatial mind mapping that that can then be linked into, uh, you know, the APIs of of uh, both data sources and and um, and 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 piped out into uh, into systems where they can actually have an effect on on the real world um you know that's that's sort of my biggest desire for it um also being able to collaboratively visualize uh these systems whether you know uh, in in engineering disciplines i think ar will be incredibly valuable and that's one of the use cases that we see put forward by you know the makers of all kinds of of different uh, AR hardware, right? So um, you know, visualizing CAD models, being able to rearrange the parts, and and so forth. Um, uh, and I think that is uh, you know a very important use case and one that I can't wait to have. Um, <laughs> uh, but but that we can sort of bring that same idea to um more abstract uh you know to visual representations of more abstract data uh sort of like node-based uh programming uh interfaces and and so forth um you know and for data visualization in general um i think the possibilities are pretty unlimited though from uh you know there's there's obviously some some potential for AR gaming and entertainment as well, um, and uh, and that'll be fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I, I 
uh, I sort of uh, see the potential for that. Uh, the way I want that in my life might just be sort of as embellishments, sort of uh, entertaining widgets that incorporate with my world as I, you know, as I go about doing what I actually need to. Um, uh, let's see. Um, there's that ADD kicking in again. <laughs> uh, with with such an open-ended question, there, there are... There are a lot of different uh, possible answers, and um, I honestly wouldn't presume to uh, to box it into a uh, sort of a, a single future. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I really think the possibilities are endless. Exactly, exactly. Totally agree. Um, well, no, uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks very much for joining the All Things XR podcast. Hey, Mustafa, thank you so much for having me on.